wasn't a bad break. Got a food in our bellies and I feel a lot better now. It's yeah. not that I wasn't even feeling bad earlier, but um, there's just so many things I wanted to hit on and it's nice to have some food in the belly to be able to focus and sit a little bit through this. So when we're, where we left off was we had just mentioned the economy Yeah, and there's a just a gambit of things that I wanted to hit on. I'm, I, I don't even think we can get to them all today, but we're going to push through and try to make this a little bit cohesive because there's a lot of sporadic little stories that we want to cover. Um, but there's also some big picture things that I wanted to, you know, kind of talk about. So when we left off with the economy, what was some of the things that you were, were wanting to, to cover when we're talking about well, our economy right now? Well, I think one of the biggest, one of the biggest problems that I have with the economy is just is the inflation and people don't understand why the inflation is happening. I mean, and, and really the big aspect of it is the fact that now we have more dollars chasing fewer goods where you get, you get the combination of the um, distribution problems. You've got uh, ships and stuff that are out waiting out at sea, not being able to be unloaded here in our ports or waiting for possible tariffs to be Can lifted. Can I give some, contract, some context on that? I know we've covered it before, but briefly, um, we know clearly that because of fuel prices, because of product availability, and because of stuff not hitting the ports, our trucking industry has shrunk significantly. And that that shrinking causes additional issues. It causes the backups all by itself, let alone what's happening with these ships sitting out on port. Now, why were the ships sitting out on port? To be very clear about it, what happened was Trump had tariffs on China and said, if you're going to tariff the goods that we bring into your country, then we're going to tariff the goods that come into our country. And we're going to make this tit for tat and use that as an infrastructure plan to rebuild better roads and better ports, which is an interesting way to do it. Instead of having the funding come from borrowing money from China, which is what we've typically done. We say, oh, we've got a 14, 15 trillion dollar world debt. It's not just a world debt. It's a China debt specifically. Um, instead of doing that, why don't we just have a country basically pay for it by all the work that they're doing and sending all these goods over? We actually finally now tariff it where we had not before. And their tariffs were pretty high. So Trump decided 25 percent tariff on the goods that were coming in. And there was a risk there. I mean, the smooth Holly mm-hmm. tariff act is actually one of the things that made the great depression so bad. So, I mean, there, there's, there was definite risk there. It mm-hmm. didn't turn out to be as bad as a lot of, a lot of people like me were afraid that it was going to be people that have a little bit more of a, a knowledge of, of economic history. Mm-hmm. But, uh, well, part of the, part of the thing was there was a delayed effect and it was because of COVID. So you had two things that happened. Trump instituted well, was, these tariffs was before lo- COVID. more delayed than just that. Yeah. But so to give it a timeline to, to understand this just a little bit, and I'm going to be as brief as possible. Trump instituted these tariffs, I believe it was around 2018. And they started slowing down production because they knew it was coming. They knew there was a deadline of where these tariffs were going to start hitting the goods. And so their production started shifting towards, well, we're going to have to be a little bit more limited on what we send over our more higher profit margin to stuff. Then on top of that, there was an election cycle that was coming up. And the 2020 election cycle all by itself was going to affect how this happened because these companies were looking at it and said, if the Democratic candidate wins, no matter who it is, because they didn't know at the time it was going to be Biden, they thought even Hillary Clinton, then they're like, well, I mean, this is this is great news for us because they're probably going to pull these tariffs back. There's that much consternation amongst the Democratic Party about what Trump was doing. They knew that would get removed. That's automatically 25% increase in profit. So of course, you're going to be like scratching your head as a business person and saying, we're going to sit, we're going to wait on this. So they started 
slowing down the cross ocean traffic and saying, we're going to just take our time getting over there. We got to keep supplying them, right? You got to keep supplying the great American, you know, markets because we're, we're a hungry source, but we're going to start slowing it down a little bit at the same time COVID happened. And it gave them an excuse to say, well, because of health reasons, you know, we've got to quarantine our people offshore 14 days before we can have any interaction at port. So when that compounded in that, in 2020, as the, you know, as COVID became rampant and as we started shutdowns, we shut down the ports that were taking in the materials. When that happened, that put a backlog and you literally had thousands of ships sitting off the West coast of the United States from China that no longer get into the ports and get their goods onto store shelves. And so you started seeing store shelves starting to empty prices started coming up. Now that's normal. That's a normal inflation that occurs, but we had something happen that created a more significant inflation. The response from the federal reserve, which is in control of our currency was we know that we're heading to a really bad place where all these people are going to lose their jobs. There's going to be a lot of uh, spikes in cost for everything. And so instead of finding economic resources to barter with and move around and try to get maybe our food reserves and our oil reserves involved in that that decline, they decided the response was print more money. Well, it wasn't just them. I mean, the the Congress passed bills to uh, to allow for stimulus plans. I they passed uh, people. Sorry. My face is getting bad on me. Essentially, like they were handing out money. Right. They because were, they, they felt were like giving it was, out these stimulus plans. And the thing is, like, they were shutting down the economy. They, they were preventing they people to from it. going to and getting their own money. Right. But yeah, the thing is, people weren't going out. They didn't they didn't expend their income in 2020 and 2021 the way that they would have mm-hmm. had everything been open. Correct. I mean, there were no concerts, people weren't going on vacations. Like a lot of the things that people spend large portions of money on they weren't doing people weren't going out to eat you know it was it was something that after <laughs> the pandemic people i mean later in the pandemic when things were starting to open up again mm-hmm. people had a lot more money than they went into the the pandemic with right. there, there was a sector that grew and a sector that collapsed yes entertainment sectors collapsed well and hospitality select uh, hospitality sector you know was hit really hard you know it's the it's, transportation sector was they were and stores weren't opening so there was nothing to move and so you had we like one of our largest contingencies of human beings working in a field is truck driving it's the, it employs majority of young males. Well, and then there were there were regulations set on on that were impacting agriculture because the regulations right. set on people going out and working in in those type of environments. Right, and that affects the supply because you know you you need those people out there in order to plant or in order to harvest or there there are various other stages throughout the the growing process and if you don't have those people then you're not going to have the same kind of yield so we have less food available but an essential an essential fact of economics is like is the idea of supply and demand and when you have a higher supply of dollars chasing the same amount of goods then that's going to drive prices up let alone that's what a typical inflation. This is a super inflation by most economics uh, that have studied this. The economists well, I mean, that it's have the said, largest inflation that we've had in over forty years, right since the seventies. And what it was is not just a certain amount of. We didn't have a stagnant supply field. We had a declining supply field, 
And then when Biden got elected and got put in place, so in 2021, what we saw happen was we saw the rollback of those tariffs. And now you had a significantly higher supply than what was there literally six months ago. Plus, you already had the inflation that occurred the last time. And then you had the Fed pumping more and more and more dollars to pay for these incentive programs. These, you know, uh, what do they call these checks? Stimulus Besides just stimulus checks. I mean, it was just there was unemployment. uh, You know, you get 99 weeks of unemployment. Oh, yeah. That was the the unemployment. um, Gosh, what was it? They had they had a kicker on there. Yeah. So there was yeah. there was special little carve outs within all the all all the stuff that you were both getting through the administration, but also through Congress. They were they were pumping money like crazy and the Fed could only do it if they printed it because they knew that it wasn't gonna come from the market. Yeah. So as they printed that money, you've now deflated the value of the dollar and you've slightly increased the the product availability. And what happened was, is like, it became a super inflation. It's like, oh, well, that money doesn't do me as much good anymore for this product. So I've got to charge way more because I have these boats sitting out at port for two months and I had to pay the cruise and the fuel and the oil and, you know, the taxes and all these other things. And so this product just became 25% more expensive and that money's not worth what it was before. So I'm going to need more of that money than what I would typically need to make up that 25%. I'm looking for 35, 40% increase on this. And so when you consider that China owns a lot of the business. They own a lot of land here in the United States. They um, own a lot of the port uh, companies. Uh, and then you have worker shortages at the ports. You have all sorts of weird things happening because of COVID and all this. It just led to that super inflation occurring. So I just want to give some background as you were going into the, you know, why certain things are happening. It's like there, there's compounding factors that led to a real financial crisis. And there are always compounding factors. And that's the thing. It's, it makes it the idea of a planned economy is just ludicrous because there are so many factors involved. And there, I've got a whole bunch of problems with the Fed with the idea of the Fed, right. let alone the practices of the Fed. Um, but, you know, it's, it falls into one of those those factors where essentially all of this inflation is having a direct impact on the incomes of everyday Americans. Right. And the Democrats claim to be, you know, the party for the poor, but it's the poor that are most impacted by inflation because right. now their incomes are going less far. Everybody's incomes are going less far, but the people whose incomes have to stretch are the ones who are going to be hurt the worst by it. Mm-hmm. Their savings are now have less buying power. You know, they they might get to a point where they're able to get a raise, but because of the raise of inflation, that that raise that they've received from their job is either now greatly reduced or sometimes not even enough to cover the rate of inflation. Yeah. For my, for my law enforcement career, it was one of the biggest issues that we kept having. We ended up unionizing and saying, Hey, we got to have some representation to argue for better pay because even before this occurred, even before we had COVID and before we had inflation as bad as it is, it was getting to be a stagnant economy where employers did not want to increase pay to even match the two, two and a half percent inflation that was occurring throughout the 2010s. And so uh, to me, it, it, it's like you've got a workforce that's already feeling overworked and underpaid, and then you exacerbate the problem by not letting them come to work. And then you offer 99 weeks of unemployment at rates because it wasn't just 99 weeks unemployment. It was there were stimulus plans around it to where if you were on unemployment, you're getting additional on top of what you would normally get for an unemployment plan. Uh, and there was people who were like, oh, man, we're buying big screen TVs and we're doing this and we're doing that because we got all this money rolling in. And it became a, a dependency market. 
and there was a rush on certain products that were convenient tools to stay at home. There was a decline in, in, you know, large sectors of the economy. And you, you basically the, the overnight almost when COVID happened, you had a shift, a paradigm shift in the American markets. And then that inflation took off and increased. And so when we talk about the economy and we're, we're talking about two different administrations, two different presidencies that had major effect on how that played out. And there's no way to necessarily predict what will be the outcome, but there's, there's some wise things that you can do. There's some good decisions, some bad decisions you can make. And so I would like to see things start turning around in that sector. But as we're saying, the Biden administration is very um, excited about the idea of increasing regulatory issues around COVID. They would like there to be. Well, they're excited about increasing regulatory uh, orders on anything. True. Basically, and that, <laughs> this this goes to a big conversation I've been having several times in this last week of we're we're kind of in a place where when you have a Congress running for two hundred plus years and its only job is to find laws to make and you do it, I mean, like on a regular basis, you're getting hundreds of laws and at least thousands of pages of law being enacted on a yearly basis. That's not just reoccurring budget related stuff. We're talking like finding carve outs for the government to take control of something. Well, and, and that's the that's the thing that's ridiculous to me. Is- you know, Washington, D.C. wasn't originally supposed to be a place where the Congress and then senators would live full time. Right. Most of these congressmen and senators had they had jobs, they had farms, they had whatever back home that they continued to do. And they would come up and they would meet in in session periodically. Well, now it's a full time job for a congressman to be up there to be trying to legislate, to be lobbied, to be doing all of these various things. And you you get kind of detached. I mean, I think it was the state of Kansas had a representative. I don't know whether it was a, a, a house or a senator, but they had somebody who essentially the, the address that they maintained in Kansas was on like a so on a sofa or a, a recliner at a friend's house. They didn't have any sort of address in the actual state that they were supposedly representing. Right. Like how does that actually, how does that mean that you are representing the interests of that state? Mm-hmm. It's, it's completely ludicrous. Yeah. We've, and we've, there's been a seizure of, control is what it's basically been. Um, I've always been kind of a small government minded person where in my opinion, this is my, my belief is that when we when this country was founded, the government was institutionalized in order to do a few very specific things to provide for the common good of the people and, and building infrastructure, maintaining the infrastructure, providing security. Well, promote the general welfare that, exactly. that's in the constitution. Now by welfare, they didn't mean welfare checks, government programs, things of that nature. They meant the general well-being. Right. To give so, you roads to travel on, to pool the resources and make sure that we're, we're doing things that, that provide for everyone so we can have an economy to protect us from foreign enemies and domestic. Uh, and they, in, in order for, for us to be able to thrive on our own, to be able to make our own uh, fortunes. Mm-hmm. So like what, what we call welfare now, back in the days of the Constitution, would have been called charity. Right. Because essentially that's what it is. But the uh, like that it's 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 essentially a forced charity because mm-hmm. we are forced to give over that money that they get then give to people mismanage and then yeah. give back out. Yeah, I mean the th- the thing is is that private charities on 
uh, almost 100% of them are more, much more effective at providing for the people's welfare than actual welfare programs are. Right. But uh, James Madison, when asked about the Constitution, said, you will not find charity in the Constitution. Yeah. It, charity is the responsibility of the individual. Right. And I think that's further illustrated by the waste that our government had propagates with our tax dollars towards the welfare of other people that we should be giving that money to charities to be helping these people instead of trusting the government to do it and just pissing 90% of that money down the drain. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's the thing is that the taxation has continually crept up over the years and is more and more resources pooling at the federal level for federal programs and federal this and that and the other. And what you've got is like a large group of people working for a huge government resource and no one is taking responsibility. Nobody is saying this is a problem. We need to change direction. It's very much, you know, the idea that we're just going to do what we have to do to, you know, protect and take care of things. Like we're, we're, we're going to take care of these people who are struggling, which is great. It's wonderful to have those social safety nets. If you have the luxury of that, the problem is the government, their number one expenditure and more than any other country is military. And it's because we've got bases. That's not all, true. Yeah, absolutely. It's true. No, what, is, what is the one single largest expenditure of the government? So I actually saw this the other day and now it's not coming to my head, but we have other expenditures that are higher than the government. Now, I'm going to look it up for you okay. because I know I've, I've seen this recently. Okay. Um, which, so pivoting from that while you're researching that and kind of the direction that, that I wanted to go with this is there's been a lot of a seizure. There's been a major seizure of power when it comes to our daily functioning, right? From local health departments to NIH and uh, the directives that are coming out around the vaccines. And so the Biden administration went out of their way to try to imp- institute through OSHA, which is supposed to be a regulatory body that, Hey, we're going to institute a, a vaccine mandate. And that got, you know, there was lawsuits put in place. Um, and we've, we just got the answer. What Tuesday or something this week that the vaccine mandate didn't stand. Actually it was, it was Thursday. Was it Thursday? Yeah. I, I knew it was like, it was very recent, but, um, so, okay. So here, here's what I've got for you. As far as the uh, the categories on what we spend our our the government spends the their budget on income security, social security, health care, and then national defense, hmm. followed by Medicare. What kind of numbers are we talking? So one point six trillion for income security, and I'm not what does sure that mean what by income, income security, security means. Yeah. Hold on, let me. Um, Economic impact payments, stimulus payments issued in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. So, and child care tax credits. Yeah, that's uh, that's a lot of money. $1.6 trillion. $1.1 trillion on Social Security. Uh, $796.8 billion on health care. And $754.8 billion on national defense. Okay. So that's national defense is 11% of our budget for 2021. Okay. Uh, that's probably changed at some point. I know that it, that it was the stat for a long time, probably, probably through the sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties, early two thousands. Well, it, it was probably still as military. the government's taken on more and more healthcare issues, right? That's a, an entirely another can of worms. 
but also as social security has become more and more of a Ponzi scheme, you know, that's, those have definitely skyrocketed up, taking up a lot of, a lot of the federal income. Yeah. They're having to shore it up because they borrowed against it. They said, we got a program where people are paying in. This is, it's a separate tax that we don't have to account for. And all the money that's sitting over here in the, in that bank, uh, you know, for social security to pay out on this stuff. Number one, we're not going to increase payments, even though there's been significant inflation just in the last 30 years, you know, from where things were, the dollar value for what you can get. You know, there's a lot of things that always change, but there was really no increases. And there was recently some increases, but they're having to pull that from the regular budget now to cover because they borrowed against the social security to shore up other programs. Well, and when when social security was created, first of all, it was a secure account. You could not, the government could not touch it. Second of all, you only received from it if you've paid into it. Correct. And third of all, it was voluntary to join the program. Now, personally, like you, there have been multiple, multiple resources that have shown that if you put your, that money into just a moderate yield account, you would be getting more than what you'd be getting from social security. Absolutely. So just moderate investments yeah. for the very, very safe ones would be getting you more than you'd be getting from social security. Mm-hmm. So it was Democrats that made that voted to make social security mandatory. It was Democrats that voted to allow people who have not paid into social security to be able to collect from social security. So we've got illegal immigrants that are able to get money from social security. You've got people who have, who never worked a day in their life. So they haven't actually paid income, haven't contributed to social security that are being able to take from social security. You've got, uh, people it became who, the, the, the default instead of not part of what you were saying. But, I, I got to push also, back let me, a little let me, bit. Let me, let me finish this one I've, thing. I got to push back also, on that one thing, but they also were the Democrats were also the ones that allowed for money to be borrowed from social security yes. to be paid for to, to, in order to pay for other government programs. To, to be fair and to make sure that we understand what we're talking about, when we're saying people that never worked a day in their life. We're including mentally handicapped. We're including physically handicapped. We're including people that cannot provide for themselves became became eligible for social security income based off of the fact that they were dependent on the state. And yes. so that was a change because that was not originally how it was structured. It was structured as a essentially a um, federal retirement program. Yes, Basically it was. said when you reach a certain age, you can't work anymore. We want to make sure that you've got your basic needs covered if you want to pay into this program because it'll be more secure and you're guaranteed a payment because it's us. It's the federal government. We'll fix everything. You can trust us. Yeah. <laughs> so that clearly didn't work out. And being eligible, uh, they, they opened the uh, exposure rate to the Social Security um, payouts and said, we're going to, there's such a large group that is now pulling from social security that the original accounts can't cover it. And the people that are working cannot cover that cost. Yeah. So, and like you said, there's not investments that are being done properly with that stuff in the first place. If it had been run, like I'm joking about this, but if the Mormon church had run that account since the (laughs) eighties, I guarantee you that Social Security would be very well off and be able to take care of itself. Just And it's not because the Mormons are good. It's because they're business people and they know how investments work and they know how to take money that's not theirs, invest it, and become completely self-sufficient from it. Well, but also you could have – the government could have run contracts to have financial institutions to have like uh, – 
Yeah, you can have Merrill Lynch and, like and yeah, you know, to, your, your major corporate, right, your you major could, corporate investment arms easily just say, hey, we're going to divvy up the pie into, you know, 15, 20 different resources to try to work this out. Yeah. And, and make them bid for contracts and and base it, base it off of performance. Now, that's <laughs> one of the biggest problems is that even when they do, they do uh, farm this out to private organizations, not. Not necessarily this, but it, when they farm out work to private organizations and, and they contract with them to, to perform certain duties, a lot of times they don't calculate performance. They don't no. reevaluate. They don't renegotiate contracts or or offer contract or take away contracts based off of performance. That was actually <laughs> illustrated. I don't know if you saw this recently. Um, Balfour Beatty, which is a company that was overseeing uh, military housing all across America, they had contracts with the United States military in order to take care of issues that came up on, on these properties. Well, they were fudging the numbers. They were having their, their service members were calling and saying, Hey, we've got this issue with, with my housing. And the place was rather than putting the, that the work lo- order in lo- lo- rather else. than logging that work order at the appropriate time, mm-hmm. they would write, they would keep hard copies and then when a person was able to actually go out, actually able to get there and correct the issue, that's when they would put the work order in. Gotcha. So then it looked like, hey, this is being taken care of in 24 hours. Well, no, it took four weeks. Mm-hmm. But the numbers there that they then presented to the government that got them millions of dollars in bonuses, actually billions of dollars in bonuses, well, that all looks like they did perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. And it's so. And there's no accounting joke. of it in the sense that like nobody's being held to account. No, nobody was being held to account. Even now when they've actually, they've actually lost a lawsuit. There was a, this whole big case on it uh, that was brought up. And I, I recommend if anybody really wants to, to learn about it, to uh, go onto YouTube and look up angry cops. He did a video that actually has some entertainment value that add, add some comedy to it so <laughs> that, you're not just freaking screaming and pulling your hair out the entire time that you're reading about it. Right. Um, but especially for me being former military, like I was in military housing towards the beginning of my, my military career. I got out of that crap. I got somewhere else. There were a lot of problems. There were a lot of frustrations about one of the only good things was that they, you paid for your, your utilities with your, uh, with your BAH basic allowance for housing. What? So like I could have put up, whole bunch of Christmas lights and run that all, all Christmas. <laughs> but that, that even started to go away, mm-hmm. but they're just trying to get somebody to come and fix your stuff was just so like and problem after problem. They probably had it where you'd be in trouble too. If as the, um, resident, if you try to take on the repairs oh, yeah. yourself, oh yeah, you're now violating policy. I mean, I wasn't even <laughs> supposed to put drain cleaner down my own drain, right? Like that's <laughs> absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. But it was a, there's a lot of not so jokes, but that about black mold being in the uh, the military housing, and that the only way that you could get black mold and all these other really dangerous problems taken care of was if you wrote up your congressman. Mm-hmm. That was the only way that it was actually going to get solved. Yeah, and it's 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 kind of a joke, but not really. Well, and it's a great illustrator of the inefficiencies of federalization. Well, but this, this now, company, after after this was all found and they were penalized by having to pay back large sums of money, they still have the contract. 
Right. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> they literally breached contract. They literally did illegal things and then they just get to keep the contract and get it to keep going. Yeah. Um, but this leads kind of into some of the other stuff that I wanted to cover where um, when the government is controlling sectors of the economy or controlling aspects of our lives that matter, it's really um, critical that they get it right, that they use good information, that they don't have a political agenda about it, that they follow the facts. And because it's such a large machine to move, if you get the country going, in a, if you get the federal government going in a particular direction with a solution, it's really hard to get them to pivot and change from it because messaging because of investment, right? They, they spend a lot of money on research and that sort of thing. And so this whole pandemic created a whole slew of things that people were like, wow, we thought that I heard this put on another podcast, the idea that we really were sold a bill of goods through the eighties and nineties and early two thousands, that if the government had us had a situation come up, there was an easy button. There was a red button they could hit, smash, everything would go into, into effect. They had plans. They knew how things would go if we had a breakout, if we had a pandemic, if we had something that happened that, wow. that was going to destroy us. We you had this. That? I'm not saying I believe that. I'm saying there was a lot of people that did. A lot of people that did not provide for themselves because they expected there was a contingency. And when COVID happened, we discovered that there was no contingency. And even those that thought there was are now coming to the point that they realize there's just not an answer. No. And there was no quick solution to anything that happened with COVID. And there's not even a good understanding of how to because they won't allow it. Right. When you don't put money towards specific studies and specific research, then how are you supposed to come up with a solution? There was no money that was put towards researching prophylactics. When it came to infection with COVID, there was no money put into research when it came to pre-hospital treatments that doctors could prescribe to say, here's some effective things that we already have repurposing of well, drugs. Actually, have you have you seen the new documents that were released by Project Veritas? That's well, I literally have it pulled up. OK, that's literally the direction we're going um, is that there were since the 1980s that Dr. Robert Monroe that had a had a discussion with Joe Rogan. He was on there and he's explaining we've been researching in the theoretics of MNRA vaccines have been there since, you know, for, for a long time. But we haven't had the ability to gene splice and edit like we do now with the CRISPR technology and other stuff like that. Um, but the idea is that essentially instead of creating, instead of giving your body um, a weakened version of a virus, we want to give your body a trigger as if there was a virus there and get the immune system to respond to it. Okay. And I've so, got to say this because it's, it's just on my mind and mm -hmm. I can't focus on what you're saying. Okay. Doesn't CRISPR sound more like it would be an air fryer than a genetic <laughs> engineering tool? But you know what? It's literally crisping your DNA, so it makes perfect sense. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying, every time I hear that, I'm like, oh, CRISPR. I haven't seen that model of air fryer. Exactly. Oh, wait, never mind. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, no. It's it's fine. Um, but essentially, so we were trying to find a rapid solution, which the MNRA uh, vaccine idea is actually a really good one because it is probably faster than trying to research and develop um, a, an actual vaccine because this isn't an actual vaccine. It's a therapy. Yeah. And what they're claiming is a vaccine does not fit any traditional definition of the term vaccine. They had to go in and rewrite the definitions in Merriam-Webster's and in medical journals all over the place in order to make this qualify as a vaccine. That's why. And suspiciously, a lot I, of that, I call it I call it a shot now. Yeah, it's a covid shot. It's a jab. 
Um, but there's a lot of the definitional changes started occurring suspiciously just before any of this happened. We're talking within the last five years before COVID outbreak. Uh, definitions like um, gain of function research took a dramatic shift. And the NIH decided they were going to have their own version of what it means. And it's yeah, still not made clear. Really. Yeah, he didn't make it clear. Well, he made it really clear that he made it's not it clear. clear that he made it clear that they have a different definition. Mm-hmm. And and so it's it's a game that's been going on between. I, I get it. When you're studying virology, you've got to do experiments. You've got to understand what you're dealing with. But the whole point of the Nuremberg Code, specifically dealing with vaccines, is specifically dealing with any kind of research that was being done on viruses, was that you were not to make them more virulent for humans. You could understand it within animals and you could say, I'm going to get an, an analogous animal and watch how the spread increases or watch how the symptoms become more deadly. But what we're not going to do is make it more virulent for humans. Well, and that, but that's the thing is that they were, he's arguing that they were making it more virulent for rats, which but, is, but the depth, the immune systems between humans and rats are ridiculously similar. That's why we use rats so often in our testing of, of treatments of viruses and diseases, bacteria, all that kind of stuff. And why we are able to use them as a first stage of testing for pharmaceuticals is because of so the similarities between humans and rats. Did you know that all lab rats come from the same pair of rats from the 1960s? All of them? All there was an entire NPR uh, show that I listened to it is quite incredible. And when you realize, because there's a lot of people that were poking before COVID happened, so they're the Adam and Eve of rats. Literally, there's an Adam and Eve of rats in the lab, and they even have humanized rats. I don't know if you understood that. So I, I've heard about them poss- possibly doing other manipulation to the DNA and the breeding and stuff in order to make them more closely represent humans for mm-hmm. these, the purposes of testing. Exactly. And so they've, they have done all sorts of little experiments. They have different types of rats and stuff, but they all come from the same source and they all have a very specific uh, genetic profile. There's, there's some things where there hasn't normally selection pushes the DNA sequence around through a species, right? It's just, you get so much pressure of disease and so much pressure of environment that you get mutations and some stick and some don't and you get a natural progression and really we making have you want to bring up rat utopia but <laughs> that's that, that was an, an ingenious uh psychological experiment that i encourage anybody to look up but we're, we're not going to take time to go explain it right now <laughs> but why this is important with the virology specifically is because uh, we understood and there's a lot of people starting to speak out about it including eric weinstein he was going on um Joe Rogan's podcast, and he even has one of his own. And he talks about this with, with his brother, Brett. Related they Harvey. were, nope, no relation whatsoever. <laughs> um, but they were doing, uh, his brother, Brett, was doing research. Um, and the research had to do with telomeres. Telomeres are basically the ability, um, they're a portion of the, the cellular reproductive process. And it's on the end of the strands of our DNA. And it's what basically makes it replicatable. Okay. Right. And it basically says the longer the telomere is, the easier it is to replicate properly as it splits cells. So as you get older, your telomeres shorten. As your telomeres shorten, you don't, you get cancers, start growing, you get mutations, you get problems and your body does not stay young. It gets old. Um, And so there's a, a rapid growth, but you're essentially dying from day one when you're born, right? You're, you've, your telomeres are continually shortening because of replication. So what they did was a research study on these rats and said, 
what's going on? If these are all from the same source, do we have any modification of these telomeres? And they found that there was a significant change in the length of the telomeres between a wild rat and a lab rat. Well, they, they need Which, to study the telomeres of Paul Rudd. I mean, that guy is not freaking <laughs> that aged dude in 30 age. years. Yeah. But, uh, you know, so like it, it, they they recognized that there could be an issue. They researched it, found that there was, and submitted papers. Brett Weinstein submitted papers saying, this is not good. This is skewing our results. Our control is not analogous. Our control is, is tailored. And we need to account for that in our documentation. And so when pharmaceuticals are doing research studies to find the effects of drugs that they're putting out into the market – on these rats that have extended telomeres, they're not getting realistic analogous results. They're getting very skewed results that a lot of times prop up the efficacy of drugs that should not be in place. And if you took a wild rat that was not a lab designated rat from that gene pool, you would get wildly different results. You would see the cancers growing quickly. You would see the, the, you know, the deterioration of the organs on a more rapid pace. So just, Small suburb, just so that I understand. So essentially what you're saying is that these were all created from a very tightly controlled genetic group. And basically they were able to erase all genetic defects because typically when you see a lot of inbreeding, you see those genetic defects really come to the surface. But obviously it's nothing but inbreeding here with these rats, but they're not maintaining massive genetic defects. it's, It's somewhat what you're saying, but it's actually, this is going to confuse the hell out of you. It it might not. You're a really smart guy. You're going to get this fine. But those listening may be like scratching the head right now, as far as what direction this actually goes, because I'm about to throw a wrench in what you just said. What happens is you can dodge a ball. That's right. (laughs) But if you look at the human um, family tree, it is more vertical than those rats. Those rats are actually being broken out and saying, okay, we're generationally separating them and we're making sure we're tracking. They're, they're actually tracking who's had the babies, who's closely related, who's not. And there is, they're crossbreeding. So they're but controlling it is more, the Yeah, but it is more diverse than we are as human beings. Because if you did the math on, you know, red, you've got a mom and dad, right? I do. And if you looked at their mom and dad, there'd be different families completely, Right. <laughs> yes, I am not from Arkansas. Okay. And we are under the presumption as human beings that that's how our family tree looks. And if you just ran the numbers of the human beings that exist today here on earth and you ran the numbers back, it wouldn't go back far enough for human history, period. There are clearly more, the, the number of human beings that would be here, if you just took it from recorded history, something's way, way 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 off well there should be many 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 more of us and the reality is is that when researchers that deal with this when you're talking about like family history and stuff these historians they basically were like oh there was so much inbreeding so much verticality to our dna that it that it's just we are not some like we're more similar than different you don't have to go that far back before you find people that 
marrying your first cousin was a common practice. Right. Because you knew the family. Exactly. Like it, it wasn't the it wasn't the kind of craziness that we think of it now. It was, oh, well, you know, we know this family, like they know us, like we know that these are these are good people. Like, yeah, you know, go go well, this, marry your cousin. This is where it gets screwy is because as you go back through um our human history, our human tech tree, if you will, you end up in the same spot where you've got like several different branches that all have the same grandma and grandpa that shouldn't in the wrong spots. Well, but you've also got, you've also got close knit communities. So you look at communities like the Basque community between France and Spain. Mm -hmm. Uh, You look at uh, the Jewish community in a lot of places, you've got very close tight knit communities that is at the same time, a small group, but they want to maintain their their culture. They want to maintain their family relationships. So they do. They they interbreed. Now it's not something. It's not as wild as your first cousin, right? It's not. But, as, but it's it, as wild as we've got the same great grandparents. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and so my so, point is, is that like historically, it's it's been that way more than it's not been that way. You can only go so many generations before you end up with the same, like we're way more connected. Like you and I specifically are probably a lot closer connected than we should be. If you looked at it and try to imagine that it somehow breaks down in a fraternal or paternal uh, linear fashion, it's just not. Rue and I have actually traced back. We have not found any common ancestry between the two of us yet. But you know what's funny? We have found a loop (laughs) in your guys's. Oh, I'm your not surprised at all. So, of course, you guys came from the Acadians, mm-hmm. but there was a loop on one side. It was five generations back, and on the other side, it was six generations back. Right. That they, that the ancestors came back and yeah. then came back together. But honestly, if you think about that, if I was to find that five generations ago, Rue and I were related, mm-hmm. who really, besides like people who are just super far involved with looking up their their genealogy right who really knows their ancestors that far back and who really cares well i I know three generations back so my dad my grandfather my great-grandfather right i I know that beyond that i don't really know Mm -hmm. so i mean that's that's to the fourth generation i don't know but then that like five or six in our situation fifth and sixth were tied yeah so that's that that's a whole of pretty far distance and yet Very few people know their relations that far back. And yet five generations ago, we're walking the earth a hundred years ago. Hey, wait, say that again. <laughs> five and six generations ago, those people from those generations were still walking the earth 100 years ago. Mm. I guarantee you there are bits of my fifth generation that made it into the 1920s. I don't. Does know that make sense? What I'm saying. My my fourth generation. Eh, my fifth generation. Well, probably, think about it. The further back the you go, it might have been. The further back you go, the younger they start. Right. They're they're yeah. starting to have families at 16, 17, 18. Well, and like for, legit families, not just one my, kid. But my great grandfather actually, I think he was in his 30s when right? he finally settled down, <laughs> which was a lot older my, than than my grandparents or my my parents. So, but yeah, no, I, you're right. You're right. You go back further, like the closer they tend to be to one another. Now, again, the younger they tended to die. <laughs> but I mean, it, what's weird is that I, th- I think it was last year that the last surviving grandson of someone who signed the Declaration of Independence died. Yeah, that's wild. Right. Now, granted, this the, the guy who signed the Declaration of Independence, he had 
the his son in Late. his nineties, right? <laughs> and I think it was that guy in his eighties had Atta- this guy. Wow! But still, three generations from the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Yes. That's getting close to two hundred and fifty years ago, right? So, like, you know, we're on such a tangent, but it's an awesome one because it. it the point is, is that the the rats in these particular situations are giving skewed results that are benefiting pharmaceutical companies and benefiting these research projects but then you put it into a human genetic pool that is well much more um uh uniform and much more um realistic in its telomere length and much more realistic in its reaction to what happens and then and when we come to the vaccine when we finally hit that point of we have a vaccine solution 18 months after the pandemic starts it's a gene therapy it is not specifically a vaccine it's not like you know this isn't like taking you know the flu shot where you know you're actually protecting against a strand you're trying to tell your body to react a particular way if it has a particular situation happen and there's a lot of research that has gone into the vaccines post vaccination. And there's a lot of problems that are occurring, you know, myocarditis that's occurred in, um, we'll call her flash, (laughs) but one of, you know, another one of my family members that she, uh, has been super healthy, super outgoing, doing all everything she should do with her life health wise. And she had more than the rest of us. (laughs) Oh yeah. She put a lot more work in on it. Uh, and yet at the same time being as healthy as she was just trying to be able to come visit family and do it in a safe manner. She took this in order to literally just have paperwork signed. It wasn't a personal, like, Oh, I really am a vaccine supporter or not. It was a, Oh, this is a part of how I'm going to be able to see my family. And that led to myocarditis and the issues are prolonged and and continue to exist right now. And that started four and a half months ago. Yeah. So, I mean, I can't remember the name of that, the, the organization that tracks vaccine side effects. Yeah. Fears. VAERS, the VAERS website, yeah. So, well, they, they talk about how maybe, maybe 1% of the vaccine side effects are being reported. Well, That's not just reported. Um, so they have to be verified, documentable cases in order to hit the website. And we already knew that it was underreported, but on top of underreported, the verification is very stringent. And so the numbers are really low that get put on there. I mean, super low compared to the number of people that actually get some kind of injury. And so when you've got 19 plus thousand people as of today that have died from the vaccine specifically, then, you know, that is more people that have died from this vaccine than every other vaccination that has ever been made in human history. Well, I mean, it got pulled in in a couple of countries in Scandinavia. Well, the Johnson and Johnson got pulled from our market too. Yeah, well, and it was an analogous I, to what you still Johnson get through Moderna. And and, I think Moderna was pulled in some of the Scandinavian right. countries, and I think in some of the Southeast Asian countries well, as well. And there's multiple facets for that. There's a lot of the, a lot of people don't understand that these um, these large pharmas are going and signing contracts with these governments to say, here's what we expect out of you in order for us to bring the vaccine to your country. We're going to require that no one can sue us for side effects or death from this vaccine and all records are sealed and not available to the public for 50 years minimum. Yeah. And you're going to pay us $350 million to show up and consult on this. And you're going to have to pay us $1.5 billion to bring the first dose into your country. So the money things aside, just the fact of saying you cannot sue us and you cannot see like any of any of the documentation, how does that not raise red flags everywhere? Well, I'll tell you how it doesn't because nobody knows about it. Right. 
And, and that's the thing is the more it stays on it wraps and the more they control the narrative on it, the more it just can't be a discussion. You, like it's really hard for me, to, me and you to sit here and have a meaningful factual fact finding yeah. discussion on these issues when the data is not relevant and it's not available. No, it's not. So, that, well, you know, I, so my, my uncle is a doctor back in June of 2020, he was talking about how he was noticing that his patients who were on blood thinners were having far less severe symptoms when they caught COVID than patients who weren't on blood thinners. So being a small town doctor, he doesn't have the resources or the time to do a large scale study into this, but he writes up a paper based off of the limited findings that he has. And he sends it into the, I think he, I think it was the NIH, maybe CDC. I'm not entirely sure. He sent it into somebody. He didn't even get so much as an acknowledgement of receipt of the letter, like let alone like, yeah, we'll look into this. Thank you. Mm -hmm. But here back in, I want to say it was September of 2021. Well, okay. Sorry. Before that point, I should say that he talked to my family and he told us like, Hey, so because of what I've been seeing with people with blood thinners, I, I think that this is, has, has a, to do with affecting clotting. And that's why you're, you're having some of the larger side effects that would explain why the respirators aren't working, why they're causing more problems because this the is tearing a, of that clotted tissue mm -hmm. is just going to cause more damage as opposed to like the, the soft malleable mucus that builds up that they were talking about it being, well, the, if it's clotted tissue and not mal, not mucus, then that's going to cause more problems by trying to forcibly expand those lungs. And, it's and a, several it's other, a blood poisoning issue. Well, and several other things that he talked about. Um, so he advised us, hey, if if you test positive for COVID, take an aspirin regimen, like fully daily recommended dose of aspirin. As long as you don't have intestinal issues, you're going to be fine. It's it's aspirin. It's not going to hurt you, but it could possibly help you by keeping that blood thinner in order to prevent whatever's going on from mm -hmm. from happening. And he had limited information, but. November of 2020, I caught COVID, right? I took the daily maximum dose of aspirin. Within a week, I was back to full health. Mm -hmm. I had I, I lost my sense of smell temporarily in there, much to my wife's joy, because then I could take care of all the diapers. <laughs> but then, but I, within a week, I had my sense of smell back. I had full lung capacity back and I'd heard stories. And that was one of another thing was people having prolonged reduced lung capacity. Right. I'd heard stories of, of they call it long. They literally call it long COVID. Yeah. A, a coworker of mine, a very close friend of his was a marathon runner who couldn't go out and do like a, a decent jog because of the reduction in her lung capacity. I had my full lung capacity back within a week, mm -hmm. cough gone within a week. So before I could even really get out of quarantine, I was back in full health. So that meant essentially that you had the infection, you probably increased the, um, as we see, there's a rapid, rapid increase of the, the cells that are being infected and bothered by this, but you didn't receive the damage, which was the tearing and the scarring that was occurring to lung tissue and to blood vessels that creates that prolonged effect Absolutely. and blood clotting disorders. Well, and then that could also, that could also explain some of the long-term effect damage that's done to people's ability to smell, right? It's causing scarring and stuff. But, um, so September of 2021, three different universities came out with studies showing efficacy of just taking an aspirin regimen on the severity of COVID. And mm -hmm. we're showing that it was over a 40% reduction in hospitalization rate and over a 50% reduction in death rate. 
just from taking aspirin. Right. That that's such a simple thing. How many deaths could have been saved? How many hospitalizations could have been prevented if they would have just come out and said, "Oh, hey, you know what? If you get this, take aspirin." Mm-hmm. It, it's a good shot. It's not a guarantee. No, it's this not isn't a, a vaccination. This isn't going to reduce your symptoms. This is going to in- increase your healing. But also, what's the risk? Mm-hmm. I mean, again, unless you have some sort of a digestive order disorder, you know, the the chances of you getting horribly sick or having a severe uh, reaction to taking just the daily recommended dose of aspirin only while you've got COVID, not, not all the time, just while you've got it. I mean, the, the, the significant, the side effects that the possibility for negative side effects is minuscule. I, and you're so, but also going into the project Veritas deal, like they were talking about how back in 2020, they had word of, hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin being effective against against covid so there's several things surrounding this project veritas um leak that occurred it's what what it's focused around is emails that were that went between officials that were trying to work on budgeting and trying to work on um research related to bat-borne coronaviruses and this one is dated from 2018 one of the first you know papers i pulled up it's a rejection of diffuse project proposal. This is basically DARPA saying, look, we looked at a project. There was something that we were interested in researching. We decided not to because we had issues come up with that. And here's why. Here's what we don't like about it. This was a $14.2 million budget uh, that had two trials that were being um, that were being brought up, uh, you know, 8.4 million, $5.7 million phase one and phase two trials. It is pretty significant money. This is going to be, um, and it's, and it was specific diffuse stands for diffusing the threat of bat borne coronaviruses. That's, you know, so they were researching this. This wasn't something that was rare, you know, COVID one, if you will, SARS one that we had back in, I believe yeah. it was SARS-CoV-1. Yeah. So 2006. So this wasn't, you know, and, we knew that there was these issues out there. And the one that we have now is SARS-CoV-2. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually they showed another thing I saw recently was showing that if you have immunities from SARS-CoV-1, because you had SARS-CoV-1, that you are immune to SARS-CoV-2. So if you had SARS back in the early 2000, then you're good from COVID. COVID's not going to affect you. It's not going to cause you problems. Mm -hmm. But they won't admit that if you've had COVID, that you're protected from COVID, that you still have natural immunities to COVID. This... <clears throat> yeah, I'd heard actually there's uh, another study that was talking about there's 17 years of research on SARS-CoV-1 or, or SARS-1 that was showing that even 17 years later, there's a significant uh, immune response well, to I mean, infection from any COVID variant. So well, the body's did, widely protected if you've had that back then. They did tests in the 1980s mm-hmm. on patients who had had the Spanish flu back in the 19-teens mm-hmm. and found 60 years later, more than 60 years later, these people still had immunities to the Spanish flu. Right. So this paper is um, the Diffuse uh, proposed project by the EAH, which is EcoHealth Alliance. It was a company that was going to actually perform the study, was rejected by DARPA. Um, although if funding became available, certain components of a particular interest could have gone ahead. It was subject to, to a clear contractual dual research of concern risk mitigation plan that includes reasonable, responsible communications plan. So essentially they're saying we 
there are parts of this that still may be relevant and we may tack that on to another project or another research or something, but there's specific issues that they went into and they, and DARPA said, these are the reasons why, like here's, we'll start with the good reasons, the things they thought were going to be good about this research project in 2018. They said, well, they've got plenty of prior experience. They've dealt with this before. They've had access to Yunnan caves where the bats are infected with the SARS viruses. So they, they, you know, there's good access. They've done this before. They've carried out past surveillance work, meaning that they've, this is something specific that they've done. Um, they have developed geo-based risk maps of zootonic and hotspots. So, you know, being able to say, okay, we know how this spread would go if it hit, you know, human populace. Um, the proposed experiment work is logical and can validate molecular and evolutionary models, meaning what does the virus become generationally? Where is it going? Where is it going to select better for? And you do that by running thousands of experiments on the exact same, you know, thing. Uh, the proposed preemption approaches can rapidly be validated using bat and batonized mouse models. So just like we have humanized mouse models, we have batonized mouse models, um, meaning DNA splicing and genetic selecting to get similar results based off of similar diseases. And so, again, mind you, these mice that they're talking about in these studies all come from the same spot and have extended telomeres and don't are not analogous to human beings. I'll tell you what, if they can do start doing gene splicing stuff, I would love to have eagle eyes. Oh, yes. And I would love to have a crocodilians ability to fight bacteria. I would mention what I would like out of the deal, but it's inappropriate for this podcast. Whale penis. <laughs> <laughs> Whale's vagina. Uh, that was a reference to a movie for those of you that don't know. Um, okay. San Diego. San Diego. <laughs> Translation was lost many years ago. <laughs> <laughs> but here are the, uh, the reasons why they cannot recommend funding at this time. So this is DARPA telling these people, here's why we're not going to touch this. Number one, this is like the smoking gun when we're talking about Dr. Fauci and proposed research. This was research that he backed. This was research NIH was yeah. directly trying to get funding for through EcoHealth Alliance. When DARPA turned it down, NIH picked it up. They still ran with it. DARPA said we ain't touching it with a 10-foot pole. Right. Number one, the proposal is considered to be potentially involving the GOF slash DURC research because they propose to synthesize spike glycoproteins, which bind to human cell receptors and insert them into SARS-CoV backbones to assess whether they can cause SARS-like diseases. Let me put that in layman's terms. We're going to take bats and we're going to take the COVID that they've got, the SARS. We're SARS going to put it in here in this little Petri dish. But over here, we're going to take a spike protein and we're going to synthesize it. And we're going to test it against human analogies like mice. And we're going to look for one that, can, that will bind to human cell receptors. Specifically, meaning we're, we're taking a disease that's in the bat that has never before jumped to human beings. And we are proposing to research taking a part of that molecule and using it as the backbone, the piggyback of taking that, that spike protein that's going to hurt humans. And we're going to put it with that SARS virus and see if we can infect humans. That is literally making it more virulent. That is literally gaining function that it did not previously have. And that is the first thing that DARPA cited as the reason why they could not fund it because it was against the law. It was against the Geneva Code of, you know, 
Geneva Convention. So number two, however, the proposal does not mention or assess potential risks to gain a function research. Nor does the proposal mention or assess dual use research of concern issues, thus fails to present a DURC risk mitigation plan, meaning that although they're good at these things and they've researched this stuff in the past, they don't have a clear plan on how they're going to make sure this doesn't break out, that this does not cause other issues. They just they just wanted to play with it. They wanted to make it humanized. Um, there's a million other things, in, and they started citing, you know, that hey, by the way, this is we, we haven't hardly even addressed. They literally said the proposal hardly addressed or discusses ethical, legal, and social issues. The ELSIs related to this research. <laughs> the proposal fails to discuss problems with the proposed vaccine delivery systems caused by the known issues of variability in vaccine dosage. This wasn't just putting a spike protein onto a back COVID and then researching that. This was, let's do that, develop it, research it, and create a vaccine for it. I mean, to me, this is at the level of complete, utter, like, uh, conspiracy theorists this is like out there Coke. are absolutely drooling over this because this proves that that was specifically what this research was supposed to do. This was two years before the outbreak. This was not funded by a weapons portion of our the DARPA, for anybody that doesn't know. They're the advanced programs development corporation, basically, for the government. They're a part of the defense, the, the Department of Defense, the same thing that runs the Navy, Army, Marine Corps, Air Force, runs all of them. In fact, it's I think that it's a Marine it's a Marine Corps major that it is that uh, this came from. It, it did well, and he he addressed these issues and said, "Hey, this research shouldn't be touched with a ten foot pole." And that's another article I've got pulled up here too. Um, but he was in charge of of overseeing that. His job was to basically take the law, research it, understand how these projects that are being funded through the Department of Defense are affecting their legalities. He might right? have been a major general. He was a. Major Joe Murphy, United States Marine Corps. Okay, so it was a major. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, anyways, th- this but is no. It's, it's essentially like it's the, the conspiracy theories around the new Coke deal. If you remember that, <laughs> yes. Where essentially they they come out with new Coke, everybody hates it. Everyone so knows it tastes Coca-Cola. different, right? Mm-hmm. So they bring back Coca Cola Classic. Yeah. I mean, essentially, the idea is that they manufacture their own problem mm-hmm. and then and then brought, had a brought ready-made solution. solution to solve the problem that they manufactured. It's essentially the same issue that they that they made COVID-19 and had, had a, and were trying to make a vaccine ready for it to go. Now, I, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that that's exactly what happened and that's exactly where this COVID-19 virus came from. But... I, I, well, I but do think that... You're, you're talking about like the egg before, the, like the horse before the cart, right? You're talking about like we uh, trying to associate it. People say you can't associate it like you're saying right now. But the reality is, is that's like saying, yeah, I can't predict the future. I'm going to go play in this field and I'm going to play a certain game and I'm going to use certain rules and I'm going to have certain scoring systems and there's going to be a particular result that comes out the other end. And I don't know which side of this argument wins, but I know the conditions that I'm going to put it through. And I know that the end result is going to look like this. And so here's the spike protein I'm looking for. Here's the bat viruses that I'm looking for to play with. And the end result is I'm going to provide a vaccine to the issue that I'm going to create. But people will tell you that you can't look at that and say, oh, that's directly tied to to COVID too. You're right. But what I'm I'm saying, what I'm saying is that, okay, we, we, we might 
not be able to say with absolute certainty that yes, this <laughs> is what they were creating. There is the COVID virus that got out. Right. It became COVID-19. That's a jump. We might not be able to say that, but we can say it's really suspicious that you guys were funding research on COVID viruses and functioning and gain of function research on these COVID viruses. And then a COVID virus escapes the lab where you were funding this sort of research and wreaks havoc across the world. Well, that is super suspicious. And the step beyond that, this is where things to me get real messy with NIH. DARPA, who is so used to critical um, assessments of their decisions, understood that there was something borderline occurring with the research, with its program directive. And they understood that because of the laws that are in place in this country, that if they got called in front of the Congress or in front of Senate to testify on these issues, that they would have no standing to have ignored United States code and to ignore, you know, the, the treaties that we've signed uh, after Nuremberg about how we research these things. And so they said, no, we're not going to fund it because it's specifically it was, it was later than that, that all of the gain of functions research was put a, put a final ban on. Yeah, but it was because of the treaties that came after that. Once we started understanding what the Germans had been doing research-wise, we realized that we needed to put some things in place. So but it was people, long after that that they put the ban on game when function was research. I, I, I was pretty sure it was post-2000. Okay, that, that's news to me. We'd have to research that. I think it was well before that, but um, because they've been researching stuff for years. I mean, I know they've been researching biological stuff weapons have been an issue since before even World War II. Right. Um, but when you have an agency of, uh, of the Department of Defense who's saying we clearly understand that this would violate law, this would this would hit it, this would get us into some kind of deep trouble, and you have NIH paralleling that research and paralleling their study of this before funding, saying, "Hmm, I think we're going to go ahead with it." Then to sit there and say, and the only reason they did is because of the same reason Fauci sat in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee and explained to them that they were that they were not breaching these laws because their definition of gain of function research had changed. And it is completely contrived and it did not happen until literally this time frame of 2018. I believe it was 2016 where it was quoted that the NIH had changed their definition of gain of function research to allow for this type of research to occur. So two years before this little thing. So this is not some nail in the coffin. Aha, we, 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 you know, we figured it all out. You know, Fauci was in on it, that kind of thing. That's not what this is. This is saying clearly the NIH lacked the same level of scrutiny of their programs and their funding options than just the Department of Defense and DARPA's did. They took their obligations pretty serious. NIH did not. And that sort of disconnect between um, th th these are in place for a reason because these things become deadly quickly. We're talking 700,000 Americans have died from COVID. Now, the numbers are a little screwy, but we're going to have to just run with it because it's all we got. Because well, yeah, I mean, it's not saying specifically just COVID. It's um, died it, with COVID, not 90, died from COVID. Yeah. It was like 90 plus percent of these people had four plus comorbidities. That's no, a no, it was, high number. I think they said 70 something percent had four plus comorbidities. I think it was, I think it was the, 90. I, th I thought the 90s was at least one comorbidity. Okay. You may be right. You may be right. Now, the apparently the pause of gain and function research was done back in 2014. Okay. I knew it was 2016 or 2014. It was somewhere back there. So, so they, they were doing. You said it was after Nuremberg. And technically no, 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 that's no, no, after no, no, Nuremberg. No. no, I thought you were talking about the definition of how they changed it. Oh, okay. No, okay. Gotcha. No, I was talking. Were you talking about the changing of the definition? No. 
What were you just saying? I was talking about they, that we actually had gain of function research funded until 2014. 2014 was when they put a pause on funding gain of function research. Is that when they instituted uh, when they instituted having a panel review all the research? I'm not sure. I didn't read the entire article. Okay, because there's there was um essentially we we there was things we weren't allowed to do gain of function research, but there was NIH was allowing certain types of gain of function to occur because they wanted to essentially say, uh, yeah, that's what it was. Okay. So in 2014, they paused it and they said, we're not going to do any more gain of function period of any kind, because we need to figure out if what we're doing violates these, these uh, treaties that we've signed and that we're not supposed to be researching and weaponizing drugs and, or, you know, or biological weapons and stuff. So as they did that, they instituted a, um, a board and the board sits down and reviews. Uh, at first Fauci said that they reviewed the definition itself of what is gain of function research. And then they more narrowly defined it to allow for this type of research to occur. And then anything that touched on the gain of function had to go before that committee and that committee, you might even look up, look this up while you're, while you're at it, look up DURC or the dual use research of concern, because that's the gain of function slash DURC research that falls under that committee's purview. And that might show you when that committee was institutionalized, but I'm pretty sure it was 2014 and their final ruling on it was, is basically, Hey, we're going to allow there to be a certain level of gain of function related to these viruses, because these are, um, if they're going to occur in humans, maybe we can justify, uh, trying to find what, you know, how they evolve. So we can, you know, basically keep, keep the public safe. The problem is when, you do something like this is being specific about where you're synthesizing the spike protein and you're trying to get it to bind to human cell receptors. And once you get good at that, synth that synthesizing, synthesizing, then you go and you take that and you put it into a known virus so that it even has the capability to go to humans before it didn't before that bat virus. So right. it's the combination. It's not just the research of where does this virus go? It's gaining function. It's saying when you give it something synthetically, that specifically would step on any definition, including NIH's new definition. And that research would have to go in front of that committee. And it didn't. That was one of the first big issues that you had politicians saying, we need accountability because this should have been in front of the committee. And it was not. Why was it not? Fauci said, no, we have never not put gain of function research in front of the committee we have always done it we've always done that this is a big deal because it's showing they clearly didn't because darpa said we know it is we know this is gain of function because it's taking two separate things that shouldn't exist together and it's putting them together and making it deadly towards human beings nih said we're not going to put it in front of the board we're just going to go ahead and research it here you go wuhan here's six hundred thousand dollars a year to research this well and then uh i saw this recently they were talking about it on the hill was that there they were new emails released showing that Fauci and several other health professionals were given briefings back in February of 2020 indicating that there was as much I think they said as much as a 60% chance that it had leaked from the uh, from the Wuhan laboratory mhm mm and, and then they wouldn't pursue it right not only would they not pursue it Fauci tried to discredit that that theory when he had been told about it long before most people even knew COVID was a thing. That's, that's really disturbing. It, it seems to be, it seems to be very clear at this point that 
there was enough information for us to make some better decisions than we did oh, as yeah. a country and as a leader in the world on how we're going to respond to these types of viruses. There was not an easy button that people were ready to hit. No. There was not a solution to these problems. They were actively doing research on these issues, but they did not do it properly. Number one, number two is being done in a not so friendly country. And no. Fauci repeatedly has been on the Hill saying, our friends over there in China are the best people in the world. They would never do something like this, blah, blah, blah. You have to understand, you know, you, you may have a political issue with China, but the people that are doing the research are, are just as good as we are and just as special and good and well, have good under intentions. the thumb of the Chinese Communist Party. And like that's the military is literally in the back rooms of the Wuhan lab performing their own illegal research. And that's widely known and understood. And yet we're continuing to fund research in a lab that's being used by the Chinese government for illegal things. That makes no sense whatsoever. No, not even a little bit. So when you come, when you couple that information that we clearly could have had a better response, we clearly could have had a better plan on how to start dealing with these things that maybe there was actually people that were actively looking for this issue to occur and it leaked and it happened. But then you couple it with, oh, well, we're going to seize up control of the economy. We're going to say we're going to use regulatory bodies like OSHA to institute vaccine mandates on employers over 100 people and say that you have to get this gene therapy that is being underreported, <laughs> that is being underverified, that has no long-term research study being done on it and is known to cause myocarditis, especially in younger males. And we're saying that everyone, even down to the age of 12 years old. And I think they even moved it down lower than that at this point. Go get your, go get your vaccine, go get your MNRA therapy and don't just get one. Let's get three, but then let's still wear masks and let's still shut down the economy. And let's still cause more logistical issues with moving stuff across our country because certain States have different regulations than other States. Well, and I'll tell you like the mask thing. So I had, I had a friend of mine whose wife was a registered nurse or, uh, uh, either a registered nurse or she was a nurse practitioner. I don't remember which, but she was talking about how, uh, like when, when Fauci was talking about don't wear masks mm -hmm. back in the first days. And I was like, well, wouldn't a mask be effective? And she told me, she said, no, there are certain, well, she told him and he told me, but anyways said like, no, they, they go through a long process of teaching us exactly how to wear the mask to be effective, because <laughs> if you don't do it properly, then you're running a higher risk of infection or passing infection, right? Like if you're touching the mask, you're rearranging it all the time. You're not wearing it. You're literally bathing it in a, in a incubator right. for disease. Right. And then getting that all over your hands and you're touching surfaces and all kinds of stuff. She said, so, it's not a bad idea to tell people don't do that because there is a higher risk of, of passing on those pathogens. Well, then when Fauci changed his mind, I asked him if she changed her mind and she said, no, he's an idiot. <laughs> so like it was, it's something that you look at that and you consider the fact that, yeah, that they're, they, they do go through a lot of training, the medical professionals, they go through training to say, Hey, do this with a mask. Don't do that with a mask. Like this is a bad idea. This is a good idea. These are proper practices. Right. Those are bad practices. And all of the advertisements and things that I ever saw or heard about the masks was wear masks. It wasn't, Hey, this is how to properly wear a mask. 
this is how to like how to not pass pathogens, not to run the risk of doing all these things with a mask. It was just wear a mask. Right. And it was, oh, cloth mask, a t-shirt mask is just as good as as wearing Which know, a surgical you, mask. It, in from my background, that is equivalent to telling somebody to just take aspirin. Well, how many? How how big of a human being are you, right? And how much do you weigh versus how much of a, the medication do you take? Because there's dosage issues there, right? Yeah. You take a whole bottle of aspirin, you got problems. You wear five masks, you might pass out, right? Yeah. Like there's there's there has to be more clarification than just put a mask on. Number one, number two, understand that when there is when you pull out a N95 or K95 mask on the boxes instructions and there's a very specific protocols within a hospital environment and it's not just that mask that's going on they're putting on eyewear they're putting on hair wear you know to cover their their entire body so that they're easier to clean up afterwards and they're scrubbing down before they get into that equipment and they're scrubbing down after they get out of it because they're treating it as a real real nasty disease which it is right the issue is is that that k95 and n95 masks are specifically meant to be removed and replaced every 20 minutes. The reason is, is because again, incubator effect, hot, warm air landing in droplets onto the mask, lining the inside as you have disease, as that starts to soak through that material, it's going to now start binding and allowing the whatever diseases around there and is attaching to the mask as you breathe in and out is going to start binding with that. And those fluids can drop back into your mouth. You can inhale them again as they're being heated up again and become aerosol. There's a lot of things. And that's why it only lasts 20 minutes. Now you can get, you can get away with, yeah, okay, you know, 40 minutes because it was a longer operation or, you know, there's something more significant we had to do, but they're throwing these out. What are they telling the public to do? What most people are wearing cloth masks, which are nothing. I mean, they're just, just nothing compared to K95 and N95. Yeah. They offer no legitimate coverage, um, but they're even more susceptible to these growth patterns. Well, especially because people are then, they're taking them off when they get into their car and just throwing and it on the seat. And they throw them down with all the junk. And, it's, you know, right. and then there. they throw it back on whenever they go into the next store. And they're using their hands to do it, which are covered in whatever disease is sitting around and there. And they're never, rarely, if ever, washing them. Correct. And- you know, you, you get the, that you get a KN95 mask or something like that. And then you wear that same mask and like for three months and then finally the stink, the string breaks. And so you throw it away and you get something else, but it's like people aren't following good hygiene practices with them. So it's making, you're making your chances of, of getting something, not necessarily COVID, but any sort of, of disease because Surprise, surprise, there are a lot more diseases than COVID out there. Yes. And they they didn't just go on holiday because COVID took over. It wasn't just the big bad bully that pushed all the other bullies out of the out of the schoolyard. So lots of people were getting sick by other things. And that's why they were talking about finally, finally, the NIH and the CDC are talking about people being admitted to the, co- the hospitals and then finding out that they had COVID. Mm-hmm. They're not admitted to the hospitals because they had COVID. They're admitted to the hospitals for other reasons. And then they run a let's, COVID test and, oh, you have COVID too. Let's talk about the incentive structure. Should we talk about the incentive structure of hospitals? Oh, gosh, that's dirty. Should we talk about financial you know, uh, leveraging? Because what happens is when you have a pandemic, the government has to respond to it and they have to provide funding, emergency funding in order to help hospitals and researchers figure out what to do with this situation to contain it, control it and to prevent the spread. Well, when and, that happens, and then you also have got a situation where hospitals are shutting down mm-hmm. the things that make them a lot more money, elective procedures Correct. and elective procedures are not just things like, oh, I want a nose job. No, we're talking They're, about putting pacemakers in. Right. We're talking about taking care 
care of tonsillectomies. We're talking about all sorts of minor ab- appendectomies and small things that won't kill you. Well, an appendectomy, like you if you can- have the attack, yes. But if you're pre-attack, yeah, no, that's elective surgery until you're doubled over in pain and about to die. Yeah, eh, we'll, we'll mess with you then. Exactly. So that's my point is like, you know, like the, that was the, what happened is that we shifted our medical system to that paradigm of only emergencies, only the big stuff. Well, and yeah, the only big stuff is the pandemic. So biopsies on 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 possibly cancerous growths. Mm-hmm. Now, I've that's heard an numbers. elective surgery. I've, I've heard numbers and it's frustrating because there's no solid answers hospital directors are not being forthcoming with oh here's the money that the government's giving us for this type of thing well no but, but i've heard trying- numbers in the range of thirty five hundred dollars a day for a covid patient that the federal government just throws at the hospital and says you get to charge whatever you need to but we're going to supplement it with thirty five hundred dollars a day for that patient you know and so when you have somebody who's sitting there from alzheimer's or parkinson's and they have significant symptoms and heart issues and blood pressure issues and all sorts of other things and they're taking up a hospital bed well, you guys can go with hospice care, go to therapy, go to rehab, get out of the hospital. You're not you're not making us money. You don't have COVID. If those people test positive for COVID, they can stay. That's it. And so what happened is everybody started getting tested instead of people who are symptomatic. So you have a large, like every, they're searching for it anywhere they can get it. And the second they can get a COVID patient, no matter how severe or minor their case is, they got a bed. Yeah. And so you have people who like my stepdad who end up not being able to sit in a hospital bed and be forced into a rehab center and being have, having to break off contact with family and all sorts of things through the pandemic. Like it just it was a very frustrating situation. A lot of people have faced it and we had a pretty minor situation of it because all in all, it turned out well for our family. But um, it, it I know there's families that had it way off worse than we did. Well, and the thing is that they're yeah, they're they're gaming the system. But they're kind of gaming the system because they have to, because they can't get their money the way that they normally do. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's there are a lot of people out there. There are a lot of people who like all too happy to take the uh, take the unemployment because hey, I, I can't get I can't get a job. I was I'm in a place that I, I've been a bartender for the last you know twenty years, and I'm in a place that they don't. They don't let any restaurants or any bars open up. Right. So I, how am I supposed to make money? You like, and so yeah, they're they're gain they're trying to get those extra unemployment benefits in order to, you know, get them by. And I completely understand that. And they're they're taking advantage of that system because what else? What else do they do? How else do they get that money? I mean, I, there's. So here's one of the frustrating things for me. This was, um, you know, who Lex Friedman is. Lex Friedman? No, I don't think so. He's a Russian migrant. Um, you know who Michael Malice is? No, I don't. Okay. Well, these guys are adjacent to Joe Rogan. Um, they've been in his circle. They've been on his podcast and stuff, but they're they're intellectuals. Michael Malice is a whole side story. I just brought him up because he's kind of associated. He's also a Russian migrant and whatever. Um, anyways, so um, Lex, uh, his background is AI. And he's a super, super analytical, intelligent guy, pretty dry, but has a good sense of humor. Uh, moved down to Austin like Joe Rogan did, you know, like he, all sorts of similarities. He had a guy on his podcast about a month and a half ago that uh, pretty big deal. You ever heard the name Francis S. Collins? No. He's the director of the NIH. He's the only person that was above Dr. Anthony Fauci when it comes to the pecking order. So he's the guy that but goes. Fauci still makes more money. Yes, because of time of service. Yeah. 
So um, this guy got on Lex's podcast and they had an interesting discussion. They were talking about the vaccine. They were talking about the pandemic response. They were talking about the future of the pandemic and what needs to improve, what needs to change so that maybe we learn something from it. And Lex comes from a very genuine, almost there's almost a naivete to his performance because he, I think really is naive. He's not used to how we do things in the U S and we're much more, um, there's much more scathing undercurrent things happening than in Russian government where it's very heavy handed. You stay in line, you do this, you do that. And you just don't question people. So when he was asking questions of Francis Collins, he was being very gentle about it and he was trying to find common ground. And, and you know, how do we discuss these issues and get through this? And he asked Francis Collins a question and I was like, Oh, that's a hard hitting question. And the response almost killed me. He basically said, um, because he had been asked this many times, Francis Collins has been asked, what would it take? And, and Lex did ask him this. What would it take for Dr. Fauci to be fired? Yeah. And what could he do? Where would be the line? And, you know, because people want to understand they don't trust him. They don't think that like his approval rating and trust is pretty low. He's not an elected official. He's an appointed one. Yeah. And people want to know how to keep a guy like that accountable. So well, you, especially if, if you know the history of Dr. Fauci, you know, of like his input on the AIDS yes. issues back in the, uh, back in the eighties and nineties. Yeah. This ain't necessarily a good actor. No. And I, I honestly, after learning about that, about what happened with, with the AIDS outbreak and, mm -hmm. and Fauci's input on that, I really don't understand how he still has a job. I don't understand Experience. why he wasn't fired back then. He's worked under a lot of different administrations and it's because he won't take that top role of the director where he can be, he can be cut off. He keeps taking the role of assistant director or like a very specific program he'll run within the NIH, but he won't put himself as, as somebody who can get chop blocked. They have to get a boss in there. They'll get rid of him. So he's done a good job of positioning himself. But Francis Collins was asked, what would Anthony Fauci do in order to be fired. I've also heard other people ask him the question in a different way, which is on another podcast. Um, you know, Dr. Collins, what would Anthony Fauci have to do besides what he's already done, which is completely lose the public trust in order to be removed from the position that he's in, which is the public face of the NIH related to the pandemic response? Because you could literally put almost anyone else up there and there's going to be a more, more of a trust level period just because it's not the same guy who screwed it up. Everyone knows he screwed it up. Well, if you were to, to come up with the verbiage and the words that you would say to that in response to that as the director of the NIH, what do you think the last thing you would ever want to say would be? Nothing. And well, guess, not, not, not say nothing, but that there's nothing he can do to get fired. Guess what Francis Collins said? There's nothing he can do to get fired. Literally, I know uh, Dr. Fauci and who he is and his character and have worked with him for years. Actually, I, I, and I there, saw this. I saw this interview. And there is literally nothing he could do to get fired because I know him. And he would never do anything to hurt the people. Might he would well never just scream nepotism. Not just nepotism. This is like the one of the craziest. I, I can't think of any job in the world, including I know how protected professors are, tenured professors at colleges. Oh, yeah. I know how protected they are. And you will still have colleges remove them if they are ex that extreme. If they do something that causes that much issue with the mission of a program or the mission of the school. Or well, I remember I remember 
reading a story about a tenured professor who once he got tenure thought, oh, well, I can bang my students now right. and not get in trouble for it. Nope, not the case. Exactly. Your tenure is only as strong as you as you make it. And so when I heard that, I mean, my jaw hit the floor. I had never heard a, a public official say that there was somebody in the government it was essentially could, untouchable. He literally was untouchable. And then further on in that conversation, Francis Collins says, I worked through three different presidencies. He worked from 2009 to 2021. So he worked all of Obama's presidency. He worked all of Trump's and he worked, you know, into the first year of, of uh, Biden's. You know why he worked in the first year of Biden's? If you were the director of a program and your job was to be impartial, what would be the last thing you would want to say about the reason why you stayed in office in the position that you're in? What would be like one of the things you would not want to be accused of? Gosh. Bias, right? Yeah. Contributing to uh, my, my boss, right? My, my new elected boss. He literally said, he did not want Trump to be able to pick his successor. He is a politically motivated actor acting as the director of a department that answers to no one, but the president himself that was left in place by Trump. And he says, I'm not going to leave until Trump's gone just so I can choose my own replacement was his exact words. Well, I mean, a lot of people do that. There are a lot of people who do. I mean, they're like, as far as, Especially Give me an example of a director of a cabinet within the Department uh, of Defense, NIH, I or don't, any other government. I don't have examples, okay. but I can tell you, <laughs> I can tell you if I was working, like, let's say that I was the head of the ATF. Okay. So, I would love if you were Yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of gun people. Everybody go home. Love, love if I was the head of the ATF. <laughs> but if, if I was the head of the ATF and I was like, yeah, no, those, uh, like, hey, you guys over there processing the, the forms process faster. Hey, you guys over there prosecuting people for unconstitutional bullshit. Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that kind of stuff. But if, if I was able to, to run things that way and stay under the radar enough that like I wasn't getting removed and then Biden comes into office and Biden's like, I'm, I'm like, all right, well, as long as he doesn't fire me, if I can just stay here and knock it out, then I'll, I'll wait until somebody who's a little bit more gun friendly gets in and then they can take over my job. Yeah, I'm going to try to do that because you, I know that what I'm trying to do at, in that role, I don't want this guy to appoint somebody who's going to completely counteract that. So I understand that. I appreciate where you're coming from. However, this situation is different. The reason why it's different is because this colors, instead of this being a black and white issue with Dr. Fauci being a good man that should never go away, this now becomes very clear that as Fauci was failing through the Trump administration in 2020, and it transitions to the Biden administration. He, this guy is going to bat and covering for Dr. Fauci, who is clearly screwing it up. And then using his position to make sure that he can pick his predecessor, who will then again, successor, successor who will then again protect Dr. Fauci. Yeah. What, who goes to that extent to make sure that a man like Anthony Fauci is going to remain in control of this pandemic? I mean, that's, that makes no sense. No. That, I don't know how you hang your hat and say, I'm done with his career because he finished December 19th, 2021. And we've already got a replacement. The interim guy is Lawrence uh, Tabak. So he's he's just the acting director until they, they yeah. place a new one. But they're, they're legitimately having talks right now in the Biden administration about putting Anthony Fauci as the director now. So 
this is where I'm just like, this is just rattling my brain how you could have like we I, I think I've had conversations like this throughout history with people about, man, if you can imagine the worst case scenario with the government protecting itself and institutionalizing creeps and bad people and bad actors who are doing things to actually legitimately hurt people in a day to day basis and protect themselves from it. And there's an elite class of people that run things. There could be no more clear cut evidence than this particular situation. Yeah. Anthony Fauci has some sort of protection over him. He's got blackmail on somebody. There is something that's happening that gives you that kind of protection from just simple accountability. Well, and the thing is, is that I, I wondered for a while why Trump didn't fire him. And I don't think Trump had a good replacement. Well, I think, I think the main reason was because he knew what a media darling that Fauci was and being an election year, he didn't want that kind of a negative publicity. He didn't sure. want them to be able to turn that into a weapon against him. Now, because Fauci and him were butting heads from the word go on COVID. Uh, not from the word go. Yeah, but they pretty were early because, on. because early on, Trump was saying we need to restrict travel from China. Fauci at that point was saying, um, well, masks are completely ineffective, but you, you, you know, stopping travel from China is not going to fix anything that could hurt the economy. So he's diametrically opposed to Trump on that. And then the whole script gets flipped where, well, masks are what we need to do. We absolutely well, need that in place. There were some, we need a social distance and we need to cut off, you know, moving across these borders. Now he made Trump look like he was disconnected from, I don't know if you remember, I remember like play by play. It was literally like a three week period where it was like Fauci was one place. Trump was another. Then the next week they come out and almost sound like they were on the same page. That's as far the as stuff response. that I remember was the, the time. Right. Well, that was the first time I became aware of Fauci was the point where they were on the same page. Right. And then weeks after they were right back into conflict because Fauci now was like, we're going gangbusters the wrong direction. And, and Trump's literally like, you just told me masks don't work. And now you're saying double masks. You're telling me that social distancing is fine. And if we social distance, clean our hands and wear double masks, we can get society going again. And he's like, nope, we're going to have to shut it all down. That's when the, the 14 days, 15 days to flatten the curve came from Fauci. Yeah. And Trump didn't like it. He wasn't responding to that well. But And there was all kinds of news reports, especially from CNN, saying, look at this. There's, there's rumblings going on that Dr. Fauci and Trump are butting heads and there's problems because Trump doesn't agree with his assessment and doesn't agree with the direction he wants to go. And then Trump comes out and says, I fully support Dr. Fauci. We're on the same page. This is what we need to do 15 days to flatten the curve let's do this well and i i think i think a lot of people would say that that was not a good idea but it was not it was a horribly educated guess well but and the other thing is is that you have to look at what the incentive structure is like or or, or the motivation structure is more more what i'm trying to say so for fauci what does he have to look at public health that's it that's the only thing that he has to consider the president has to consider the welfare of the entire nation. So not just about public health, but also the economy, you know, people's ability to go out and provide for themselves. The, the mental health of people, because they're skyrocketing mental health issues that happen during the shutdowns. It's still you know, lingering and, oh yeah. and becoming worse oh yeah. because the longer it stretches and we, we're talking about inflation, well, but people it's going to kill more and people. people have wrapped themselves up in this fear culture. Yes. I see people wearing masks by themselves in their car. Beyond that, let's talk about the reality. So one of the other things, this is another subject I want to get into is mass formation. It's not mass formation psychosis. 
Psychosis is the result factor, but the mass, the, the idea that we as a body of people here in the United States, even if you're not the, the person that has the outward expression of the fear, you have inward expressions of it. I specifically have had multiple conversations with family members over the last couple of months because I'm a little bit nervous. I am not in the condition and shape that I want to be in. Right. So that's got to fix. I, th- that's an easy fix. That's get up and do what I need to do. Well, it's, the gym it takes again, some right? time. Yeah. But, but it's, there's a time aspect to but it. It's not complicated. But what was not clear and what I can't figure out is uh, where I can go to verify whether or not I have any kind of immune protection from COVID and whether well, as far I've as getting had like it an before. antibody test. Antibody is pretty minimal test because oh, antibodies agree. drop. And what you're actually looking for is B and T cell memory. Yeah. So I need to figure out what lab test I can do that I'm going to get B and T cell memory response. To the, okay. Your immune system will respond to COVID. We've, we've tested it. And it's not just that you have antibodies floating in your blood because the antibodies are, Hey, that was a recent infection. What if I had this infection right off in 2020? Yeah. I'm two years away from it now. I may not have antibodies floating around. I have a limited exposure to people anyways. It is very limited. I mean, even right now, I mean, you're sitting far enough away. And there's enough fresh air and movement that we're not really sharing the same air. And, and so even when I have people over for podcasting, I'm not in the same threat level that a lot of people that go into an office are. And we're not even intentionally social distancing. I know. It just it just happens. But um, my point is, is that I have comorbidities that would go with an infection of COVID. And so I consider myself to be a little bit at higher risk. And I know that the vaccine has shown statistically that you have a, a lower chance of hospitalization or terminal illness from it if you've had the vaccine. However, in the same group of people that take the vaccine, there's a high percentage of people with comorbidities that have issues with heart and other, you know, other factors. Yeah, there was um, actually there were a few <clears throat> a few pilots in the Navy that were actually they they were taken out of the flight program because of developing blood clots after the vaccine. Right. And that's what I mean is there's a series of things that happen potentially with the vaccine. And so I'm sitting here weighing what is the better option for me? And I can't get clear answers to know which way. I think it'd be super clear if I had a test I could do, submit my blood samples, submit a urine sample or, or saliva sample for them to be able to test T and B cells, figure out if I got immunity already. Because if I have natural immunity, it's, my answer is I'm going to stick it out. I'll well, handle the variant, right? Well, and but the thing if is, the answer is if that's not the case, then I don't even know still now, like two months ago, I would have been in the position that I'm going to go take the Moderna and get it done, right? If I got that answer. But now I'm in a position of, well, Omicron is completely an outbreak from the vaccine, from their proposed MNRA gene therapy. It absolutely does not protect against Omicron. No, it doesn't. And, and it's not going to protect against the next one either. It has some effect with Delta and the original. But as with pretty much any disease that, that we've had, each variant that's come out has been more contagious, but less deadly. So the the actual death rate of the actual death rate from the original covid right was higher than the flu right the death rate from delta was about the level of flu maybe a little bit under mm-hmm. the problem is is what we look at it's hard to necessarily separate because exactly. the numbers aren't being these collected. were only from the original variant right these were only from delta but you can look at from time frames and when when delta really started to be on the rise right now there's still going to be some overlap Again, but what we're seeing from Omicron is that it's significantly lower than the flu. Yes. It's it's ridiculously low as far as the death rate from Omicron, but it is spreading like wildfire. Like it is way more contagious than Delta ever was, mm-hmm. but 
extremely mild symptoms, even for people who are unvaccinated, who have never had the virus before, right. are having very mild symptoms. The death rate is really low. And, it, and it, I understand- In fact, that we haven't documented a specific case of Omicron, from my understanding, that Omicron was the cause of death, period. So, uh, I've, no, I've, I've seen- Okay, I can't say whether the, the the cases that I've seen where the person had Omicron and they've died mm -hmm. are people who died with COVID or people who died from COVID. So I, I haven't seen anything that said, yes, Omicron was definitely the cause of death, didn't exacerbate some sort of pre-existing issue. But now we we have the aspirin therapy, take, taking aspirin. Ivermectin has shown a lot of a lot of promise, a lot of, of positive results from ivermectin, regardless of what people like Dr. Fauci are saying, ivermectin was designed to be, to, to be able to fight pathogens. Mm -hmm. And yes, it is used in livestock, but it is also a people medicine. It was, has, the, the it was Nobel a people Peace medicine Prize. first. Nobel Peace Prize in 2013 for the use of ivermectin in humans. Yes. So, yes. and that was dealing with some, some, uh, river based, um, viruses that were in Africa, I think is what the research came from. Yeah. But then, then so there's he, also, they've, they've shown that like even that, uh, the page from DARPA was talking about using hydroxychloroquine mm -hmm. to help combat it. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there are, and there are even, there are repurposing more medications and more things yeah. out now. So, and, and the CDC is not investing in the research of that, and they're not approving funding for the research of that. Well, they're and, not approving the research of that. No, they're not. They and, won't and, approve trials of it. And Biden's bogarting colloidal antibodies because he yeah. doesn't want the red states to be able to use them to, to get people healthy to and showcase that, hey, you know, we can not lock down and things can still be okay. Mm-hmm. So this is from Reuters, January 12th. COVID-19 hospitalizations in the U.S. increased by 33%. Deaths are up 40%. The head of the U.S. Uh, Center of Disease Control said on Wednesday. Um, but the magnitude of, the, of this increase is largely related to the Omicron variant, which now is present in about 90% of the COVID cases in the country. But they said that, um, that it is... Uh, late as of late December, Omicron has surpassed Delta variant as the dominant version, but the vast majority of the deaths have been from the Delta version still. Yeah. So Omicron is really not super deadly. Delta is still around. Delta is still hitting people and people that are dying are mostly dying from the Delta. So, yeah. you know, like, what do you do with this information? Like, I, I feel like we have lost the ability with our directors and our administration and uh, cabinet uh, officials have lost the ability to have nuance. They view us as the public as being incompetent of processing information and receiving instructions more complex than put a mask on. Yeah. And that's a concern. They do not view us as valuable thinking, contributing members of society. They're going to be capable of putting it into this problem that, you know, it clearly 15 days was not what it needed to get over this disease. It was stronger than the disease was stronger than that. And our economy could not be shut down and people could not be kept indoors. It's just not realistic. No. And the people, the places where they tried have suffered the most, the harder they try, the worse it is. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, the, the, you look at places, I mean, if you, if you look at the death rates of places like, uh, like Texas, where they've opened up everything, mm -hmm. they've been, they've been relatively unrestricted. And you look at the death rates in places like, like California, they're not really that different. Right. Like the, so 
it's not helping to shut everything down. You're just causing further problems for your economy and for your people. Mm -hmm. So in that case, like if, if it's not helping, if it's not solving anything to cut, to shut those down, mm -hmm. you're just causing all of these collateral damage effects. Right. Then why not be more like Texas, be more like Florida, open stuff up. I mean, you it's can't, worth a shot. Yeah. You got to try I, something new when the old, old, when the old adages aren't working, you've got to move on to something new. You well, have to try the definition of crazy. Repeating the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Exactly. So we are in that. Um, I really would like to go on with some other stuff, but we're kind of at that point where we've got some other things to attend to. So I think we're going to finish off the podcast here, but I do want to mention that we're going to be coming up on some subjects. Hopefully we can record again here in the next few days, and then we can have a, a few podcasts come out over the next few weeks because uh, there's some interesting information that I ran into with uh, Richard Burns, who used to be the CEO of Overstock. Uh, he, he gave a presentation at a, at a rally and the information was very concerning, in, in some senses, um, it itches that scratch for the conspiratorial side of me. That's like, yeah, there's actors, you know, within the government at all points. Like there's, you're going to have people who are trying to influence and sway and move the direction of the country. Um, but I'm not really a conspiracy theorist. I think most of the time I poke holes in everything that I hear. This was one that made so much sense to me that I was like, there may be inaccuracies in the story of, of Richard Burns and what he experienced while working side by side with the FBI and the CIA, but it answers so many questions of why did certain things happen that really don't make sense to us. Um, when it came to the response to COVID, when it comes to, you know, the, the presidential elections, when it comes to the investigation and Trump collusion, when it comes into all these different subjects that were kind of like, you know, the hot buttons over the last few years. So we're, that's really where I want to get into in another podcast, but, um, anything else you want to say before we head out today? Let's go, Brandon. Let's, <laughs> let's go, Brandon. <laughs>